You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Sarah Canary, the Jane Austen Book Club, What I Didn't See in Other Stories, Wits, and her new novel is Booth. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you, Rick, for coming all this way. You know, I have to admit, I had a weird reaction as I started reading your latest novel, it's clearly a great American novel. It really fits into that genre of being about a bunch of stuff about America. And it's also magnificently funny and moving all of the things that the great American novel had to be. And I thought, this reminds me of Moby Dick. Good Lord. <laughs> Dune. <laughs> And also uh, the something that is neither great, but it is actually novel, was at the time the Loud Family TV series, which was the inception point of all the of reality TV. Well, but I, so talk about. Um, You've written about uh, Booth before, so talk about just choosing this kind of format, this big, sprawling novel that's really fun to read. Uh, as you said, I had written about the Booths before. I'd written three short stories over several years, so in the course of doing those short stories, I had just read a lot about the Booths, and the more I read, um, the more... I felt there was just um, so much that, it, it, you know, in a kind of um, bizarre way, one or another of them managed to be at uh, many of the kind of iconic events of the periods of, of, uh, the, of the American history that they grew up in, so that um, Edwin Booth was in California um, touring the mining camps um, shortly after the gold rush. Um, John Wilkes Booth was at the hanging of John Brown. Uh, both of them and their sister Rosalie were in New York City during the New York draft riots that sort of if you made a list of the kind of major events up and around the Civil War, up to and around the Civil War, um, the booths were at a surprising number of them, and um, and then because they were a famous theatrical family, there was that history as well, of which I was completely unaware and totally fascinated when I began looking at the you know the history of Shakespeare in America and uh, what the stage meant to uh, to people during that time. So I started, uh, you know, I was doing this reading and I just, with, I think, annoying frequency, um, began to regale my friends with incidents from the lives of the booths. And, um, and a couple of my friends finally said, you know, how is this not a novel? It was, it clearly was. And I think that one of the things that interested me most was my reaction when I first read the first, your beautifully written opening segment, which is describes the building of a house in the wilderness in 1838. That's 184 years ago. And I thought, this is like world building. That's what, that's the part that kind of reminded me of Dune. You're describing this whole thing that is in some ways very familiar to us, but also very foreign. And I thought, and, and I thought, wow, 
that's a long time ago, but so much of that seems somewhat familiar. I mean, 184 years, that's a long time. I thought, if that was in the future, it would be set in 2206. And how different would 2206 be from now? Then, so, oh, my mind is like skipping through time regularly as I, as I read this. So talk about, you know, the one of the things about science fiction is it's set in the future, but it's not really about the future. The future has to happen. Who knows what the heck's going to happen? Science fiction is about the present. And I think the same is true of historical fiction. So talk about world building, the, uh, the distant past as informed by the present. Very complicated question. Um, first of all, um, just to um, agree with you uh, that there are a lot of similarities between um, trying to imagine a future in the kind of detail you would need to set a story there and trying to imagine the past in that same kind of detail. Obviously, you have more help with the past. Um, but um, but in many ways, having tried to do both, there is a, a similarity in the process and the kind of thinking involved. Um, and uh, I think that um, that the sort of impact of this period on the present was not as clear to me when I started the book as it became as I continued to write it. Uh, I had this quote from Ursula Le Guin, which um, I assumed would make it into the book, but I think did not in the end, which is that the election in 2016 was uh, another battle in the Civil War, and that the Trump voters knew that, but that we did not, and, um, and that they won it. And um, it seems to me now that, um, that I used to think that wars just didn't end. Um, but now I think the side that wins thinks the war is over, but the side that loses knows that it's not. And that the fact that um, that the South both lost and has never um, accepted that loss as final is hugely determinative on the politics all around us today and became very, very visible after, uh, after Trump became president. Well, you know, that's really interesting because I think one of the things you do really well in this book is to describe the past in a manner that makes us feel like we're embedded in that past, yet we're still kind of cognizant of the present, and, and since we are, in fact, reading it in the present, it's hard not to see the parallels, and, and, but you do a good job of not pressing them, you know, and, and it's interesting, too, that the book itself is, um, that, that Booth, John Wilkes Booth, who one might presume would be the main character and, and dominant in the narrative. He's kind of like in the background. He doesn't even show up till page 58, I think, or, or so. So talk about like creating, you know, this wonderful family story, <laughs> which does really ha bear many, makes you think a lot of the present, I thought. I think so too. As I said, this became clearer to me as I wrote when I began the book, but but I did know from the very outset that I did not want John Wilkes Booth to be um, the main character, and it was it's sort of a you know a, a Zen koan that I struggled with the whole way through. That um, I wanted the book to be not about John Wilkes Booth, and yet um, you know it's just inescapable that I would not be writing this book without John Wilkes Booth, that in some way he is absolutely determinative of, you know, of the story and how to tell the story as much as I am on every page struggling 
to keep him relegated to, to the background. Um, there were a couple of reasons that I didn't want to write a book about him. First of all, I just thought he's, um, he's gotten an enormous amount of attention over the years. He doesn't need more. I thought that part of the story would be familiar to a lot of people. Um, and the story of his family would be much less familiar to many more people. And in many ways, I, I just thought it was more interesting that um, I think that, you know, if I had a sort of mission statement for the book, it's that I wanted to make the case that people who don't kill presidents are just as interesting as people who do. You know, that's one of the things that, that struck me is that up till the, the the final incident, nobody would have thought that John Wilkes Booth would be the most interesting, the most famous, the most lasting name. I mean, his father who was was like, you know, uh, the, you know, Harrison Ford of his time, or, you know, he was a very, very famous actor, but also he partook of, you know, the lifestyle that we now think of uh, uh, as being like a rock star. <laughs> he did, with the exception of um, the uh, constant sexual adventures. Um, you know, he had the one where he ran off with a young woman and abandoned his wife, but as far as I can tell, that's it. Then, you know, then he was not hopping from bed to bed as he toured around the country in the way both his sons were. But he was, I mean, he was damaging those hotel rooms. <laughs> That's true. And, and um, he was lucky, or those who are around him who helped him on his tours were lucky that M&Ms were not invented back then. <laughs> so, so talk about, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that when we first meet him in the earlier portions of the book, you kind of think, well, you know, he's not the nicest guy in the world <laughs> and we're seeing him from uh, the point of view of, of Rosalie who's just really wonderful so talk about I guess modulating the perception of one of the major characters of the book as you write Did, was this something that happened as you wrote that you began to like him more as you wrote about him, or did you already know how you felt about him and modulate? I think I already knew how I felt about him. In, in general, um, I do about a year of reading and research before I begin to write. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and material about um, Junius Booth was very easily accessible. And he was just... Um, you know, he was just such a strange mix because, um, on the one hand, he was a vegetarian. He clearly had a very tender heart, uh, and um, you know, sort of uh, anti-slavery, uh, but um, also, you know, a, a vicious drunk. And so, it, you know, those uh, putting those two things together was really interesting for me, but one of the interesting things, I thought, was that um, uh, for all his um, uh, capricious and sometimes cruel behaviors, his children seemed to have just adored him. That, uh, and I think part of that is that he wasn't home very much, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, he, he does seem to just have been one of those people who lights up a room when he walks into it, that he's tremendously charismatic, a wonderful storyteller, that, you know, that their lives were all sort of um, faded, uh, Kodachrome until Dad came home, and then suddenly um, the house was full of life and adventure. And um, uh, I, It's a, a paradox to me that um, Edwin, who spent more time with him than John did by a considerable amount uh, and was frequently the focus of his cruelties, um, grew up so much less angry than John, who spent that same time in the loving, cosseted embrace of his mother uh, with, you know, nary a 
contrary word being spoken to him. But somehow he turned out to be the angry one, and Edwin did not. You know, one of the things I think that makes this book so interesting is the way you decided to tell the story through, you know, various narrators. So, and also, the as we read it, um, there's always this kind of more wondering, well, how much of this did she find out, and how much did she make up? I mean, that's it, true in any historical novel, that isn't it? it is true, and that's one of the the interesting points. So, tell us about the decision to. Uh, the narration decision, and also just about the how much uh, of reality TV was there actually <laughs> in this? Oh, this is, um, I have so many answers to this question. Um, but I'll, I'll start by saying that I, I have a lot of suspicion about the whole idea of the historical record. That, um, and I'll, I'll start with a personal story to illustrate how unreliable everything you think you know is. Um, but for most of my life, I was told that I had an ancestor who fought uh, for the Union. And that at a certain point, my grandfather, my, my dad's father, really wanted membership in one of those Sons of the Civil War sort of organizations. And in order to get that, he had to prove to the organization that the Tom Burke, who was our ancestor, was the Tom Burke who died of malaria before ever seeing any action, and not the Tom Burke who was shot as a deserter. If it was the first, he could join this club, and if it was the second, he couldn't. Um, and I, I believe, although I'm, I'm less clear on this, that he was able uh, to, um, to join the club, to prove to the satisfaction of this group that uh, we were related or descended from the right Tom Burke. Well, uh, about 10 years ago, my sister-in-law got very interested in genealogy and she started doing a lot of work on our family, her family, but also our family. And it just turns out that not a word of that is true, that we did not have an ancestor named Tom Burke, that the first of our family to come from Ireland um, was Patrick Burke, and then he came in the 1870s. The Civil War was over. I have no ancestor who fought in the Civil War. Um, and so, you know, we know, that, um, we know that eyewitness accounts are very unreliable. We know that memory is very unreliable. In the case of my family, there appears to have been an active fantasist at work. Um, pretending that, you know, that we had a history we don't have. And so um, um, someone uh, a couple of days ago asked me why I didn't just write a nonfiction book. And I said, you know, I just don't think I believe in nonfiction. Um, the booths are a particular challenge because there's a lot of material about them. There are a lot of people fascinated by this family. A lot of people have done a lot of work. Um, but there's also just an enormous amount of mythology and, uh, you know, you, you take what I said, the unreliability of the eyewitness account, the unreliability of people's memories, and you add to it an event like the assassination, which just colors every, the story everybody is telling themselves then about the family and, you know, suddenly uh, people who um, had no suspicions at all think, oh, I always thought there was something about that John Wilkes. I always, I always saw. Um, so, you know, you're just, um, for me the challenge, because I did want the book to be accurate to the best of my ability. Um, so the challenge was trying to decide which of the stories about the booze um, I could trace back to something reliable and which ones I couldn't. And, um, and I chose partly also a, a kind of omniscient viewpoint for parts of the book. It seems to me that when a writer uses the omniscient viewpoint that this is something you dip into and out of. So most of my book takes place in a 
limited third where one character is telling the story. It's either um, the oldest sister, Rosalie, the middle brother, Edwin, or the youngest sister, Asia. Um, but in between, um, I am jumping onto the page to, you know, say, uh, give the reader information about things that are happening in other parts of the country or things, um, how the story that I'm in the middle of telling you is going to end 10 years later. Um, and one of the things I really like about this viewpoint in a historical novel is that it allows me to tell the reader things that the characters don't know. But even more importantly, it allows me to be very honest with the reader about the things that I don't know. So there's a death in the book and, um, you know, uh, depending on the source you go to, uh, the story of this death is very, very different. Either, you know, either an innocent victim was killed um, maliciously or, you know, an aggressive um, confederate was uh, uh, brought about his own death. and. Um, Obviously, you see the political agenda in both of those stories, and um, so because of the omniscient viewpoint, I'm just able to provide both stories and say, you know, I don't know, I don't know how he died. You know that that's one of the the fascinating aspects of, of this book, because it really does mirror, in a sense, you talked about your family history. Everybody's family history is, you know, about at least one third to maybe one half mythology. Exactly. And, and, and what I, does that do to the study of history? Well, it puts it means that uh, we're all storytellers, <laughs> to put it nicely. Are, are you know? Uh, Lying is a big part of our lives. We, we, and I think, too, it's important to note, too, that it's not so much that we lie to one another, but we lie to ourselves first. I know. We are so gullible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, but it's so easy to tell you, to, I'll believe that person. Because, you know, I like believing that person. And that makes me feel good. And whether or not... They're saying is true or not, doesn't matter. I'm good with that. Well, now, you know, now we're tiptoeing into the area that um, I, uh, I used to feel no compunction in saying that I don't believe in nonfiction. And now that we live in the area of false facts and alternative facts, um, suddenly I'm very uncomfortable suggesting that it's just all up for grabs, believe whatever you want. Um, now we that that's interesting, the, yeah. We see the, the limits, or we see the implications of um, of not believing in nonfiction at all. So I have to I have to find some more moderate stance. Now. Yeah, yeah. We we live in a reality deficient era. <laughs> I wonder if it was ever thus. I probably. <laughs> I I think that's the case. Uh, you know. Too, as we grow older, our interests change. And I think that's one of the things that's reflected in this book is that <clears throat> when you're a kid, you know, you like might like running around and, you know, playing sheriff. And maybe when you're older and you start to notice like politics matter, at some point you decide they matter. And, and then you change your perspective entirely. And that happens to the characters in this book, I think. So, you know, talk about uh, informing... This book is informed by the politics of the present and the politics of the past, the characters are. So you yourself are kind of like blurring <laughs> in and out of the characters, which talk about that and, and using that as a kind of narrative drive to, to take the reader through the viewpoints of many characters, but with a, still a singular focus on what we at least pretend to be as the present? Um, I, I'm not entirely sure what you're asking, so try one more time. <laughs> okay. Well, 
you use a multiplicity of characters yes. to achieve a Rashomon-like effect. We'll see the same incident from two different point perspectives. Right. But we are one reader and you are one writer. So there's something you uniting that. So talk about using that uniting factor to create narrative drive through a variety of narrators. I, I think um, one of the things you're talking about maybe is the idea of the unreliable narrator, mm -hmm. which um, again, because of the omniscient viewpoint, um, when uh, one of the characters, Asia Rosalie or Edwin, really has something wrong, um, and, and I know it, um, I'm able to point it out so that you have these two strands of the story going forward. You have the character who believes in whatever it is they believe and whose actions are being um, uh, developed in accordance with that, but you also have the, the more detached view of it where the reader can see that the character is, is going in a wrong direction somehow. Is that what you're asking about? Yeah, yeah, deviating. And also, too, it, it strikes me that one of the things you can do when you're writing historical fiction is you can orchestrate the facts to create the sort of fiction that gets closer to true experiences than the facts might themselves get you. D yeah, well, uh, um, the the facts as experienced and understood by people, um, people in, in the real world. One of my favorite examples of this in the book is that um, there's a, a moment where um, Asia is just filled with admiration for her two brothers, uh, the, two, the brothers she was closest to, Edwin and John. Um, and she's, she, th she is thinking, what just what wonderful young men they are and at this very time um, Edwin is uh, suffering from gonorrhea and um, spreading it uh, wherever he goes and John has made a woman pregnant and has had to buy her off um, because um, he is of course claiming that she's probably had many lovers and there's no reason to think he's the father and she is claiming that she has not had many lovers and he is absolutely the father and um, and so large sums of money have to be uh, have to change hands before she'll back off from this accusation so all of this is going on but Asia is completely unaware of all of it and just thinks you know they're the they're the most upright um, admirable of men Junius Booth the father is really a wonderful character. And so I'd like you to talk about, because he is a thread for a big part of the story, talk about um, how, learning about this guy and writing about him and, you know, giving him the space that he really deserves. Because I think from the perspective of anybody who's in the story up to the inciting point of the narrative, so to speak, um, would think that only person from the Booth family who might be remembered for a long time is Junius, although it turned, and at first a lot of people also thought Edwin himself. Yes, would be the one remembered. Uh, um, again, um, I have a, a bunch of sort of um, digressionary kind of... Uh, uh, thoughts. Um, I don't think digressionary is a word, but why not? Why shouldn't it be? Um, so if I don't remember to get back to your actual question, um, but one of them is that um, that the Booth children um, seem to me peculiarly invested in the family name, how they'll be remembered in, uh, you know, um, and I think a lot of this comes from Junius, who tarnished the family name in two ways. Um, one by being a bigamist, and uh, one by having these very, very public bouts of insanity, so that uh, 
as famous as he was for his genius on the stage, he was equally famous for, um, you know, the um, completely unhinged uh, actions that he sometimes very publicly took. And I think um, the children, uh, again, they're very invested in their father's genius and they're very anxious to um, erase from the record these other things that that will tarnish the name in some way. Um, and 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 they're they're motivated by that a lot. Asia in particular, I think, is very protective of the family name. And they and they all, um, you know, despite incontrovertible evidence, deny the big me to their dying days mostly. Um, so um, so there is that going on, and I think that that also uh, is a factor in the assassination that John Wilkes Booth says at a bar um, that uh, um, shortly before he kills Abraham Lincoln that he's going to be the most famous man in America. And I do think that he thought um, that he would be admired for this act, that he, you know, he's going to leapfrog over the fame of his father and his brother um, to be, you know, not a Shakespearean actor, but a Shakespearean character, that he will be seen as Brutus in Julius Caesar. Um, and it's a great shock to him that that does not happen, even, you know, even in his beloved South. There are a lot of people pretty horrified by, uh, by what he's done. So, um, I don't know, this idea that they are booths and that, um, that the name means something starting with their father seems to be uh, a very deeply shared um, belief on behalf of all, the, all of the children. You know, one of the things that really interested me in this book was the way you use... Um, the the different characters to convey different perspectives and, and I think uh, Rosalie was really really an interesting character and so talk about you know doing research into each of the individual characters and then weaving that back into the bigger bigger tapestry that you were that you are creating starting with Rosalie um who is the most difficult um, because there is just so little information about her. Um, well, that makes her excellent for your use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I could determine where she was at any given time. I could determine what was happening around her. But who she was is a complete mystery to me. And, um, and yet, I really felt I needed her perspective Partly because um, I thought those early years, that 50-whatever pages before John Wilkes Booth is even born, uh, were a really critical, um, powerful part of the family story. That, that the family you know, lost four children and that this deformed everything about the family, uh, um, how they related to each other, how they... Uh, how they viewed the world. I think um, Junius's drinking and madness um, really accelerated with the deaths of those four children. I think the, uh, Marianne, the mother, went into a deep depression that she never entirely recovered from. And the younger children were, um, with the exception of Edwin, who would have been very little, um, the others were all born after these things happened, and so the only um, the only eyewitness character I I thought would work to cover that early part of the story was Rosalie. Um, and I, man, I uh, you know I tried so hard to find out more about who she was, but she just left such a slight mark on the world. It was um, one of the greatest pleasures of my life to discover that she had this um, enduring romantic fantasy about a lion tamer that just 
helped me so much in trying to imagine who she was and you know and it's not often that you are researching a book and a romance with a lion tamer is handed to you in this way um, but you know more frustratingly she was clearly had some sort of infirmity um, everybody was constantly referring to her as an invalid and poor Rose and poor Rose's health um, and yet there's absolutely no record of what what was wrong with her that um, there were rumors that um, she was feeble-minded at some point um, but she left behind a handful of letters she clearly wasn't she clearly was you know quite smart um, um, she did not appear to be entirely immobile she went after they moved and left behind a bunch of friends in Baltimore um, she returned fairly frequently to see her friends so she had friends she could travel um, she had a social circle um, and yet you know something was so tragically wrong with her that um, her siblings honestly never referred to her without the adjective poor poor Rose poor Rose so that was enormously frustrating because that seemed like information that ought to be readily available and yet was not. Um, for Edwin and Asia, um, there were just rafts of material. They both left behind uh, long correspondences, uh, many, many letters. Uh, Asia wrote three books. Um, Edwin had uh, so many friends who remembered him and who'd spoken to him and who could talk about him. I felt I had a, a much clearer sense, I actually felt I had a pretty clear sense of who they were. You know, what uh, Edwin's letters are very funny, they're very self-effacing and, um, and um, I, you know, you see what his sense of humor was. Asia's letters are frequently quite self-pitying and um, censorious about other people. Uh, so you get that sense of her as well. I do think that Asia was probably the smartest person in the family, that she was the best, clearly the best educated person in the family. And that, um, you know, it was the time and place, and I don't think that she really struggled against it, even in her mind, but um, but it must have been galling to, you know, see her brothers go on to these heights that she could have so easily uh, accomplished had she not been a, a girl. She could have been a contender. She could have been a contender. You know, one of the things, too, about this book is I think that large parts of it are, are infused with a, a dark and very dry sense of humor. I, I really enjoyed that. So talk about that, you know, putting humor into the perspective in a way that, you know, you don't necessarily, there aren't jokes or anything like that, but it's pretty funny just by virtue of the way you're telling the story. Well, thank you. I, um, I think that, um, and, and this was, I felt very clearly when I was writing, we are all completely beside ourselves. I feel that, um, that as a reader, there is a limit to how unhappy I am willing to be made if it's a fiction book. If it's a nonfiction book, then I've got to, I've just got to, buckle up and deal with with how horrible people actually are but in a fiction book I don't you know I don't um, uh, I, I don't have to make up a world that is um, nothing but darkness and I wouldn't as I said as a reader I wouldn't want to read that book so when I do know that I am going to be dealing with dark material, and God knows, you know, here we have slavery, and we have the Civil War, and we have the assassination. Um, there are, uh, you know, there are dark times through, uh, woven throughout that um, sort of the bargain I offer my readers is, but I will also try to be funny. <laughs> 
and I, I know you're going to be asked to look at some things that are very um, heart-wrenching. Um, so I'll also try to be funny. You, you do a good job in uh, dealing with, you know, the heart-wrenching aspects. The the treatment of, of slavery in this book, I think, is particularly well handled. On one hand, it's, you know, the most atrocious human thing that you can do, practically. So, But you write about it well enough so that we see how, you know, as we've learned, that one thing history ought to teach us is that people can get used to anything. Yes, yes. And I, I do feel there's a generational um, aspect to how the Booth family felt about slavery. That um, their grandfather, who was raised in England, only came to the U.S. as an old man, um, was the most shocked and horrified and actually seems to have participated in uh, the Underground Railroad and in a, a modest sort of way. Um, the parents who were born in, also born in England and came here uh, as younger people, as a younger married couple, were also horrified by slavery but not as much as the grandfather was, not to the extent of actually trying to do something about it um, beyond, um, and, and I, this is not nothing, beyond pain, um, the, um, the slaves that, uh, that he leased from other farms, uh, wages of their own, so that in some cases they eventually were, because they had worked for Junius Booth, they were able to buy themselves. Um, but, um, you know, it, it wasn't, I feel that it wasn't an issue that occupied the parents the way that it occupied the grandfather. And then the children just grew up with it all, all around them. And um, I, I feel that, as you said, um, people can get used to anything, but, um, but it also takes some time uh, and, and uh, perspective to notice that the things that are just common, routine parts of the world that you live in are actually deeply horrifying. And um, I'm, I feel that the, the Booth children, with the exception of John Wilkes Booth, who whose feelings were quite opposite, very pro-slavery, very white supremacist, um, that the rest of the family um, identified with the North, opposed slavery, but not with passion, um, you know, for something that was the animating issue of almost everything going on in the country at that time. They appear to have paid very little attention to it. And that, in spite of the fact that um, some of their closest friends, uh, the Hall family, who had lived with them on the farm, and uh, Joe Hall managed the farm for father, um, were a black family dealing with it all the time. You know, one of the things that um, that that struck me as you know interesting and and. Uh, horrifying in a way that I had never encountered or thought much about before, is that in Maryland at that time, if a child was born to an enslaved mother, that child was a slave. And if a child was born to a free mother, that child was free. And because um, Joe was able to buy his wife um, from uh, the plantation where she was a slave, after they had some children, but before they had some other children, you have this family in which half of the children are slaves and half of the children are free. And that just struck me as um, such a strange and impossible thing to negotiate. You know, uh, one of the things that, that I just couldn't help but think was when I was reading about uh, uh, John and the, the know-nothings, 
I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, this is just like QAnon. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. it's, it, it, it was really fairly terrifying because, I mean, you think that uh, we've made a great deal of human progress over the past 184 years, 184 years, uh, we have not. You know, technology has changed just some, but not much. Just it makes, in some ways, it just makes the ability to be bad easier and worse. Yes, yes, and you know, the ability to um, spread misinformation just so effortless now, uh, and aided. Not you know, not only is the technology there, the technology actually. It, is designed to produce this. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, but yes, you know the know nothings for a period. Uh, they controlled Baltimore, and um, and every election day was a massacre. Uh, and so, um, as bad as QAnon is, uh, I worry about the direction we may be headed. Uh, not without reason. <laughs> and uh, I must say. You know, uh, putting together a, a long work like this, it must be really interesting for you to go back and read like what you wrote a year ago. <laughs> I, I think this book took more took more a couple of years to write, right? Am I wrong? That's about took about ten years. Yeah. yeah so that I mean, you have changed. See, one can change pretty significantly over ten years. So, so there's an element of your own history, of looking back at your own history when you write a book like this. So talk about that kind of the weird, the superimposition of your own personal history writing the book versus the history that's in the book. It's uh, very vivid to me in this particular book because when I started writing it, Barack Obama was president. And... Um, the sort of um, inciting issue was gun control for me. That I, you know, it, it's just um, unfathomable to me that uh, the relationship that um, our Constitution has apparently locked us into with regard to guns. Um, it, one might say a misreading. Yeah, not <laughs> yeah. the way I read the Constitution, no. but um, but the way um, the Supreme Court does. So you know, it just seemed. I mean, um, I think many many people shared with me the sense that when Sandy Hook happened, that would be the end of it. That that there that this was just unbearable and something would be done and yet it seems you know no uh, no human sacrifice is going to be sufficient now uh, does not that, you know uh, on the one hand we have the currently inflamed debates about abortion and the value of every life and potential life and on the other hand we have you know the massive number of people killed by guns every year um, George Carlin once said, once you're, once you're born, you're on yeah. your own. <laughs> yes. So, um, because I had been writing about the booths, um, and um, they were very much in my head, I, I started thinking about the families of the shooters in these, in these cases, and, and wondering to what extent they were complicit in you know, what their child or their brother um, had gone on to do. And I, you know, figured, um, obviously, sometimes I would think families were complicit and sometimes I would think that they were not, not at all. Uh, and it would be very much case by case. And that, and that started me wondering about the booths. I thought, if I go and look, because I don't know the answer to this question, how complicit am I going to think? the Booth parents and siblings were in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And also, how did they survive it? What did the assassination do to the rest of the family? Those were the questions I started with. Um, 
and um, and then Trump was elected, and I put the book down, and I did not pick it up for more than a year. And when I picked it up again, my focus had shifted from um, uh, from gun control to the Civil War and to the sort of enduring narratives, uh, competing narratives of the Civil War, what it meant, and. Um, uh, you know, how the stories we tell ourselves about that war, which stories we choose to tell ourselves about that war, um, continue to hold enormous power in the current politic, although, um, you know, it's been, what is it, 150 years? 100 and, anyway, it's been a long time. But, um, and, and in many ways, um, we are in the Trump years and, and now in the Biden years, we are still seeing very clearly the, um, the, the arm wrestling over how to tell this story so that, uh, you know, the removal of Confederate statues, um, the renaming of, of certain places, uh, very contested and, um, you know, and then uh, now the, the, the more troubling decisions that um, we're not going to teach people um, certain aspects of our history because it will make them feel bad uh, or I don't know what the reasons are, but I think, you know, uh, again, the, um, the disconnect between demanding that um, statues of Robert E. Lee are part of our history and that we are erasing our history if we bring them down while simultaneously saying, you know, we're not going to have anything about race in our schools. Um, um, it, it, it just uh, boggles the mind that one of those is erasing history and one of them is apparently not. The new book by Karen Joy Fowler is Booth. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.